Sunday in March. Starting next Sunday, we're going to look at words from the cross for the month of March as we prepare our hearts and minds for Resurrection Sunday in April. But today we're going to finish the series. We've been dealing with the question, what's love got to do with it? And we have learned as we have studied together that love has everything to do with it and certainly is a supreme reality in the Christian experience. And each one of us on our journey should embrace what the scriptures say about God's love to us, our love to God, and our love also to others. In this series of messages, we have studied what it means to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he answered that with a, a very comprehensive but concise answer. It doesn't seem to go together, but he said, he said, you need to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in that answer, he incorporated all 10 of the commandments. And we've studied that together. We've been looking about at that together. Today, we want to talk to you about loving others with respect and restraint. What does it look like to love others like we should love them? And we are going to a very famous passage. So if you can find your places in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to look here at the Apostle Paul's writings about love. Now, if you look at the outline, you can see it's lengthy. Don't be scared. We'll be done in a half hour or less, I promise. You just have to listen quickly, okay? So if you can listen quickly, and if you miss any of the blanks, ladies, make sure you get them, because your husbands need this message today, okay? So all the ladies said, oh, oh my wife said it the loudest. I, I, where are you sitting? I heard her, but I don't see her. Okay, she's right over there. She would be right, okay? We're just going to... I want to eat today and I want to sleep in my bed tonight. So she's right. Uh, anyway, 1 Corinthians 13, let me read to you the first several verses of the chapter. And as we, as we get into the teaching today, I want you to consider how you can make this passage that we're going to look at personal. So if you're married today and you're here in a marriage relationship, I want you to think about your marriage today and how you can take the principles that we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7, and plug them into your marriage. That is the very first place that you need to start today with this passage if you're married. If you're not married and you obviously have other relationships uh, in your life, I want you to think about how you can take this teaching and plug it into the various relationships that you have. This will revolutionize any marriage and it will revolutionize any relationship for your good and for God's glory. This is powerful, powerful teaching. And I want us to consider these things, especially those of us who are married today. And men, I want to challenge you with taking the leadership to invest in your marriage these principles. We are told as men to love our wives as Jesus loves the church. And if we do that, so many other things fall in place in marriage. In fact, I can say to you that in the years of pastoral ministry, I've had over 20 of them now in, in pastoral ministry, and the times that I have talked to couples who are struggling, a lot of times, I would say maybe an overwhelming number of times, at the heart of the issue, it can come back to a husband who really isn't loving his wife as Jesus loves the church. It solves so many of our problems. 
And so guys, I want to challenge you today to really think about this in relationship to your spouse and to your marriage. And uh, Pastor Lee has a great little card that he'll give you if you need a reminder. Let's see if I can get it. Affection, uh, affirmation, and attention. Did I get them? Did I miss one? I got them. So if you want to see that, men, he has a little reminder you can take with you. He loves to talk about marriage and love, and we have benefited greatly over the decades of having Pastor Lee and Joan as examples of what it means to live this out, and we have others too. God has blessed us so much, but I want to encourage you to invest in your marriage today and to do what God's called you to do. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. It says this, If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to be burned but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things things. Could we just give the invitation right now? Is anybody else under conviction? Okay. And just think, I have to go through this twice every Sunday. Okay. So I really get beat up. Let me talk to you for a few minutes today, the remaining time that we have left, and I am going to move quickly. I want to talk to you about how we can love others in this way with respect and restraint, restraining ourselves and respecting others for their good and for God's glory. So what does this look like? We're going to answer the question. The first thing that I want us to see is that we need to realize that love is the supreme element in all relationships. In fact, the first three verses of our text speak to that. And we want to talk to you about that for just a few moments. Love is more important than the most amazing spiritual gifting, because gifting without love leads to pride, and then to abuse in relationships. And so we need to really connect with this. Love is the most important thing, even more important than spiritual gifting. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, Paul says, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Everyone here who's a believer this morning has gifts from God. God has gifted you in some way. One or more spiritual gifts God has given to you. And sometimes that gifting can become an element of pride. We can be the most gifted person here today, but if we don't have love, the Bible says it is all meaningless. So the exercise of our gifts and our abilities without love is nothing more than a bunch of meaningless noise. In fact, the Bible here uses the term symbol. I think this is important. The symbol in context was used in the rites of pagan worship. And so when Paul was writing to the church, basically what he was saying to them was, if you interact with one another and you're not doing it out of love, and they even had a problem with being envious of other gifts, which we'll talk about in in a few minutes. They had a real struggle here with gifting, and they weren't loving each other with their gifts and through their gifts. And Paul said, if that's what you're doing, I don't care what you can do with your giftedness. 
you are no better than the pagans who aren't even worshiping God. That's probably what they would have thought about when he used this word symbol because these symbols were used in pagan worship. Boy, you talk about an insult, right? I mean, he was just really going after them strong. This would have arrested their attention and spoke deeply to them. So the gifts without love, these are as valueless and useless as pagan worship. It's so important we get this right. We learn from this beginning here, the first three verses introduction to our text, that love is more important than spiritual disciplines. It's more important than amazing spiritual gifting, but it's also more important than spiritual disciplines. He talks about the spiritual discipline of faith. If I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. I care how spiritually disciplined you are, if you're not loving, you are nothing. You see, faith was never meant to exist in the vacuum of selfishness, never meant to exist there. Faith, as we know, without the works of love, James even talks to us about this, is dead and meaningless. So our faith needs to be energized by and motivated by love. If it's not, the Bible says we are nothing. The third thing we learn about love and and the fact that it is supreme is that love is more important than extreme sacrifice, even to the point of giving yourself as a martyr. The Bible here says that love exceeds that. Giving without love is merely an obligatory action that will maybe soothe our conscience, but will do little else for us spiritually. As we sacrifice, let us do so out of and with love. Sacrifice, even martyrdom, giving your body to be burned, probably a reference to martyrdom, is a meaningless sacrifice if one does not have love. A rigid and cold form of discipleship is not discipleship at all. It is meaningless legalism. And so love is the warmth of discipleship. Love is what causes us to do things for the right reasons and in the right way. And without it, the most amazing gifting is nothing. The most important, the most extreme spiritual discipline is nothing. And the most selfless sacrifice means absolutely nothing without the warmth and energy of love. And so that's how Paul starts the passage. Now let's go to the litany of things, and we're going to continue moving quickly. Paul gives us different characteristics of love, and we're just going to work our way through these things today. How can we continue to love this way? After we realize that love is supreme, what do we need to do next? Well, the very first thing here in our passage tells us that we need to discipline ourselves. If we want to love in this way, we have to discipline ourselves to be slow to anger. You'll see the word patient here, and the word translated patient means to be long-suffering or slow to anger. I suffer long, we could say. That's another way to interpret this and to translate that. I, I train myself, I discipline myself to be slow to anger. How many of us are there today? Think about it. Do we become quickly angered? Does that cause us to do things and say things and respond in ways to our spouse or to other people with whom we have a relationship in a way that doesn't honor the Lord? Are we truly slow to anger? Are we patient? You know, this demands that we respond properly to at least three categories. And this is not comprehensive, but it's just to get us to think. We have to respond the right way to the things that annoy us. Uh, Spouses, do you ever annoy each other? My wife never annoys me, but I know I always annoy her, okay? So we, we get that straight. 
Do you ever annoy each other? Of course you do. How do you respond to those annoyances? Right? How do you respond to those annoyances? How do you respond to inconveniences in your relationships? That happens, right? This tests whether or not we're going to be slow to anger. What is our default setting? How do we respond when we're inconvenienced by our spouse or by other people? What about wounds? Every relationship probably has wounds. We wound each other, not because we set out to do it, but because we're prone to do it. We're still wrestling with the residue of our depravity. We're still growing in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus, and we're going to hurt other people even if we don't mean to. Now, granted, there are people who do hurt other people on purpose, but in a relationship where we love one another, that isn't the case, but we're still going to have wounds. How do we respond to that? I want to mention a book at this time that really has spoken to me, and it's probably time for me to read it again. Do you have those kind of books in your life where you read it and you get something good from it, and then you go a while and you go, goodness, I need to go back and read that again? Well, this is one of those books I need to read again. It's called The Ministry of Marriage, written by Jim Benny, and it talks about seeing your spouse as part of your ministry that you pour yourself into them so that through all the annoyances and inconveniences and wounds that might be there in your relationship, just because we're human and we do stupid things, we need to see our spouse and others in our life, especially our spouse though, as, as opportunities for ministry, that we would minister to them. You know, we're good at ministering to others. We're good at doing our ministry in the church and we serve and serve and serve and we're busy and we run around all the time doing all this stuff. But do we really stop to consider that we need to be ministering to our families? Husbands, do you see your wife as a ministry opportunity every day that you minister to her and you pour into her life and you, you just do what she needs you to do, even if there are annoyances and inconveniences and wounds to deal with? You just love her through all of that, just like Jesus loves you through all the junk that you do? See, we've got to love at this level and love in this way. We have to discipline ourselves to be slow to anger. Jesus was the ultimate example of this. Philippians 2, we won't read that passage, but you read through it. He became one of us, he dwelled among us, and he ministered to us as a servant. We need to serve others just as Jesus has served us. And men, if you're going to love your wife as Jesus loves the church, you must develop this kind of servanthood. Otherwise, you're missing it. You're not even coming close. All right, number three, I can't part too long on these things. Number three, let's determine to treat everyone with kindness. You see, love is kind here in the text. Verse four, the Greek word here translated kind, this exact word only appears once, and it's right here in this text, only appears once in the New Testament. Kindness takes the initiative in responding generously to the needs of others. I challenged the, the crew at 8.30, and I want to challenge you again. I want to challenge you today at this time. This isn't just investing enough kindness to get by. That's not what we're talking about. This is an abundance of kindness. This is an overwhelming kindness. I want you to think about overwhelming your spouse, men, with kindness. Not just investing enough kindness to get by, but overwhelming her with kindness. Ladies, think about that the same way with your husbands, and let's think about that the same way as we deal with anyone that we touch in our life. It's taking the initiative in responding generously, not just enough to get by, but generously to the needs of others, going above and beyond what they may expect you to do, exceeding expectations. 
You give me two people who are married, a husband and a wife who are married, a man and a lady as God defines marriage, and you bring them together and they both work their hardest to exceed expectations and to overwhelm each other with love and kindness, and I'll show you a strong marriage. This is how we need to invest. We must do this, determined to treat everyone in this way. You see, because believers have received kindness from God, they should be kind to others. He truly is the example. Believers are to be considerate and compassionate even when others are not. It doesn't say be nice if everybody else is nice to you. It's just a given. You be nice regardless of how others are treating you. You see, kind love is gentle and mild, always ready to show compassion, especially to those in need. Without love, even the greatest gifts cannot, even the great gifts cannot be exercised with an eye toward helping others. Kindness. Number four, we need to learn contentment and refuse envy. This was a real problem here in the first century church at Corinth. This word refers to strong jealousy toward another person. And in the context in the Corinthian church, the believers were jealous of the spiritual gifts of others. You see, we have a mention of it at the very beginning of our text, going back to verse number one, if I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The believers here in the Corinthian church were looking at the gifting that others had, and they were wishing that they had it for themselves. There were some pretty cool things happening in the first century, especially with sign gifts. And those gifts and that gifting seemed at times people would get out of whack. We'll talk about this in a minute. And they would elevate those gifts above the other gifts. And if someone didn't have this incredible gift of speaking in tongues or, or any of the other sign gifts, they would envy that and they would be jealous of the gifting that they see in other people's lives. I want to talk to you for a few minutes about this. Envy in this context comes from an unbiblical categorization of the good gifts that God has given. To rank the gifts as superior and inferior, think about it this way, is an insult to God because He never gives inferior gifts. Never. So if you're not gifted in a particular way, get over it and rejoice in the gifts that God has given you. Your spouse may be gifted in a different way. You may wish that you have the gifts that your spouse has from God. Get over that. Rejoice in the gifts that your spouse has. Encourage the gifts in your spouse and facilitate the usage of those gifts for their good, for your good, and for the glory of our great God. That's how we need to be energized with the gifts of other people, not with envy and jealousy. God has given all of us special gifts. None of them are inferior. Envy about gifting is a direct result of rebellion against God's sovereignty. He, through the Spirit, sovereignly dispenses to His children the gifts that He desires them to have. And for me to say, I want something else, God must have made a mistake because He didn't give me what I really should have had or what I want to have, is just a rebellion against His sovereignty. And it's a sin that we need to repent of. So we would say that we need to submit to His sovereignty, be content with what He has given, and rejoice in the gifting that He gives to others. Rejoice in it, encourage it, and facilitate it. There are some couples that need to go home today and have a conversation about giftedness. 
Men, if you want to see your wife blossom and flourish in her love for you and in her love for her great God and in her love for other people, figure out a way to rejoice in, encourage, and facilitate the use of her spiritual giftedness. And if you haven't had that conversation, have that conversation beginning today. See how it is that you can encourage this in your spouse and do it together with one another and rejoice in the good things that God has given. Don't be envious toward those who have gifts that you desire to have. Encourage them in their giftedness. That's what I think love looks like in this context. Number five, we must develop what I call grace-generated humility. The Bible here says that love is not boastful and it's not arrogant. It is humble. How can we do this? There are three thoughts here that I want to share with you. First, how can I do this and, and, and keep this grace-generated humility? I need to remember from where my gifts have come. These things are not inerrant in me or innate in me. These things aren't a product of my heart. Uh, these things are not who I am. They are things that have been infused. And without God's grace, I wouldn't have any of these things. I wouldn't be gifted in any way whatsoever. So I need to remember that these are gifts from God. That's why I call it grace-generated humility. They are products. They are gifts of God's grace to me. They are nothing that I can make of myself. I can't ever attain this without the gift of God. That perspective keeps us humble and keeps us from being arrogant and proud. There's nothing that we have that we came up with ourselves. Every success, every blessing, every effective use of our gifts comes from God. So then we need to refuse to be proud when God blesses the using of our gifts. Again, this is difficult for us. When we see success and effectiveness, it's easy for us to get lifted up in pride. Love doesn't do that. Love has humility and refuses to be proud and love focuses on refreshing others with our gifts and rejoicing in the work of God's grace. I'm not arrogant. I'm not boastful and proud when I keep this perspective, when I focus especially on refreshing others. Let me just encourage you to do this. Take your gifting and refresh other people with it apart from any agenda that you may have or any motivation for notoriety that you may have in your heart, no, invest it in refreshing others. And let me bring it back to marriage. Do this with your spouse. When's the last time you invested your gifting in your spouse? Number six, if I'm going to love in this way, I must practice what I call here self-awareness. Why do I call it self-awareness? Because verse five beginning says, that those who are loving in this way are not to be rude or irritable. How do we come across to people? What is our image? What do other people perceive us to be? I think we need to be concerned with this, and we need to allow others to communicate to us how we come across. If I truly love my spouse, I want to come across in a way that isn't rude, that is not irritable and, and rude and out of line. I really care what my messaging is. It's not just what I do, but it's how I do it that's important. I can do the right thing in a rude way. And if I do that, I'm not showing love. That's what the Bible's telling us here. We need to be concerned with this. 
So work on developing courtesy and politeness. I put this here, listening first instead of speaking first will go a long way here. How many of you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you struggle when you're talking with somebody, all you can do is think about what you're going to say next? Anybody else here? That's a challenge for me at times. All right, we need to undo that. We need to stop that. We need to become good listeners. We need to really take an interest in what people are saying. I'm rude to you if all I'm doing is thinking about what I want to say next or what, I'm, what I plan to say next. I miss everything you're saying to me. And you might be saying something to me that's very important. But if all I can do is think about what I want to say next, I'm rude. There are other examples of this, but that's just one that I'll give you to think about application. Avoid talking over others when you're talking with them. Uh, We need to be careful of this. Listen, develop the skill of listening. Uh, And we ought to be listening a whole lot more than we're speaking. We certainly don't want to talk over others. And then never humiliate others, but seek to build them up, edify them, build them up in Jesus Christ. If we're someone who gets a kick out of demeaning others and downing others and criticizing others, You know, that's the very worst thing, guys, that you can do with your spouse is to publicly humiliate them. And yet there are many couples who just can't wait to do that when they get in a public setting. I think it's cute and it's funny, and really it can be very harmful and hurtful. So let's let's get victory over that. Humiliation is not something that we should take pride in or glee in. We ought to be building each other up. All right, number seven. If we're going to love this way, we need to learn how to defer. say, what do you mean by that? Well, the Bible here says that if we're going to love this way, we cannot be self-seeking. To be self-seeking is to always want your way. Deference in matters of preference and opinion is a virtue that all believers must develop, and putting others ahead of yourself is important to accomplishing this. Can I defer? Can I allow freedom and liberty in someone else's life, even if it means me not getting exactly what I want. And again, coming back to the example of marriage, this is so important. You know, guys, it might be something as simple as, I can't believe I'm going to say this for a second time today, but I am, giving up control of the remote control at home, right? Just not having to be in control of everything. And, you know, so what if it's Hallmark Channel or something else that you just can't stand? Deference, right? deference. Silly example, but there are so many other examples in marriage and in our relationships where we need to learn how to defer and really put others ahead of yourself. What do you do when you don't get your way? And are you okay with somebody else getting their way? We should be, and we need to learn how to defer. We cannot be self-seeking. Next of all, practice forgiveness. You know, the Bible here puts it in a great way. The end of verse 5, this kind of love does not keep a record of wrongs. Forgive. Keeping a record of wrongs is the result of refusing to resolve issues. So when we're made aware of a conflict and we seek to deal with that conflict and people say, no, I don't want to talk about it, that is exactly what's happening here. They're keeping a record. They're refusing to resolve issues. This leads to discord in the family and is worthy of church discipline. It is actually an abomination to our great God, those who sow discord in the body. 
Resentment and revenge is the result of keeping a record of offenses. So I just want you to think about your relationships right now. Are you holding on to offenses that you should be forgiving and moving on away from? Don't keep a record. Don't seek revenge. Don't, don't act in resentment. Don't try to get your pound of flesh. Don't do that. That's only going to destroy you. You may be dealing with a very difficult thing right now in relationships. Okay, let's deal with it biblically and properly. Even difficult things need forgiveness. Finally, and we'll be finished today, if we're going to love in this way, we need to refuse to take pleasure in anything that is contrary to God's character and nature. What does it say in verse 6? Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. So, believers must not take pleasure in the moral failures of others. We can't take pleasure in that. We need to come around them and help them and encourage them and facilitate repentance, but we can't take pleasure in it. Believers must never see themselves as morally superior to those who fail. That's where a lot of problems in this area come from. We see ourselves as better when really we're not. And as we go through this process, believers must speak the truth in love to those who have failed. Again, love wins the day here. Verse 7 is a recap. Let me read it and we'll close. Basically, if we're doing everything that's mentioned in the previous verses, we'll see this kind of love, a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So take an inventory. Give yourselves a checkup. What do you have that characterizes your relationships? Is the supreme element love? If it's not, then we have some work to do. And if we're lacking in any of these areas, the investment is worth it. Let me encourage you, especially if you're in a marriage, invest in it in this way for your good and for the glory of our great God. Can we pray together as we close today? Father, thank you for our time this morning. And as we have covered a lot of ground in this passage, I pray that it would resonate in our hearts, that it would renovate us from the inside out, and that it would revolutionize our relationships. God, I pray for marriages that might be challenged and struggling today. Maybe there are some that are close to destruction. We don't know. But we lift them up to you today, and we just ask for victory in them. Father, thank you for giving so generously to us. We're going to receive gifts at this time, and I pray that we would give them in the right way for the right reasons, that you would be honored to receive them, and that we would appropriate them and invest them to show your love to the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.